Hello and welcome to episode 42 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stan, help. I'm trapped in like this red box, and the only thing I see are a bunch of little goblins coming at me, and they look weirdly like Zach. Are you reporting into the podcast from an escape room right now? Well, I mean, we're talking about kind of an escape room. I think Shane is making his one phone call. <laughs> to, to prank hopefully, us on the podcast <laughs> hopefully it lasts about an hour and 45 minutes long <laughs> because i got i only get one till next week and that's going to be next week's episode actually next week and the week after i'm out of here y'all i am in barcelona spain Ooh, Barcelona, Barcelona. And for the about the next about the next 10 days or so so i missed two episodes of the dive down so enjoy me while you can <laughs> eat me while i'm hot Hot pockets. Also with us here in Chicago, it's the warden, Zach Colhan. I am so very excited for today. For today is our visit to the Supermax prison slash and or escape room that is Mono Red Prison. Dave had to sit this one out, probably for real this time, not like the time he showed up in the middle of our mill episode. Yeah, if you haven't heard, we put out our first ever bonus episode on Monday of this week. It was a dive into mill. Thank you so much to all of the patrons who made it possible by helping us reach our stretch goal. And now we're planning to do bonus episodes once per month. So sit tight for more fun topics in the week to come. We probably won't do mill again, or maybe we'll do mill every month. Only one way to find out. (laughs) Mill a month, MM is what I'm saying. (laughs) The mill chronicles. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a big fan of chapter five, the Shadowmancer's journey. On this week's show, we'll break down the results from last weekend's modern challenge. The first Magic Online tournament featuring Throne of Eldraine. Then we'll dive into Pyro Prison, the mono-red prison deck that runs neither Lightning Bolt nor Scred. Stay tuned to hear why. Finally, we wind down with a check-in on TCGs. But first, some housekeeping. Shout out to the newest patrons to join the Dive Down Nation. Nate P., Elena M., Tom A., and James B. Also thanks to French Kicks, LK Sock 52 and YXAG Erpel Dink. Z- Zargle, Zargle Pludunk. Zargle Pludunk. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a good demon name, right? Totally. Thank you all for the friendly reviews on Apple Podcasts. Also, guys, uh, I think this is a good time for me to make a confession, but you have to promise not to get mad. I think it's a, that's an irrational expectation to place upon us, Dan. Shane's always mad. Don't you know this? All right, well, I'll assume Zach promised not to get mad. <laughs> so you know how I was supposed to test Mono Red Prison for this episode? Instead, you played uh, Blood Moon. I mean, Blue Moon. No, I haven't played any Blue Moon this week, in fact. Though, as much as I loved playing Mono Red Prison for this episode, I still had to play a couple other decks. <laughs> I get to play all the decks. I played a little bit of Red Black Skelemental. I played a little bit of Blue Red Phoenix. Both of these decks don't run Faithless Sitting anymore. I had to find out how and why. And all of that is possible because I get to play all the decks thanks to Manatraders.com. Woo! Yeah, it's sick. I mean, uh, since upgrading to gold, it's even better. I'm, not, I'm This is not me shilling for Manatraders, by the way, okay? Because I actually use gold. I actually upgraded to gold before we were working with them because you know Modern is getting a little bit more expensive on uh, Magic Online, and I want to be able to play all the decks. So this week... I was testing out uh, Jeskai Humans, 
Uh, that was prior to Eldraine being legal on Magic Online, so I can't really talk about Charming Prince yet, but it was fun to just kind of take out a, a Jeskai a human deck with a little bit more removal to try to face down some Stoneforge decks. And one thing I noticed on Twitter today was there was like some Magic Online problems, and mana traders tweeted out how they just like auto-paused everyone's use of their mana hours while it was going on. I thought that was really cool and generous of them to like be proactive about it, and uh, makes me just kind of respect them and working with them makes me happy to do that. Yeah, so thank you, mana traders. If you'd like to sign up for your own mana traders account and play all the decks and get better at Magic in the process... Use promo code the dive down all one word for ten percent off your first three months of Mana Trader service. Now, with all that out of the way, let's jump over to Shane at the news desk. All right. So, as Stan mentioned, we only have one kind of higher level tournament to discuss this week, and it's the latest Modern Challenge. We're kind of in a lull of the you know GPS and SEG circuit of Modern. So this will let us take a little time to focus kind of on the the trenches of Magic Online, which honestly is a great way to keep tabs of the metagame because it's not just what people are bringing to one big tournament for one weekend. You see it kind of evolve week to week, and I think that's really valuable. So this challenge, there was about 138 players. I'm not sure if that's a huge amount for a challenge or not, or if that's about average. I wasn't able to find historical numbers. It seems a little low to me. People are probably getting into standard with uh, the fresh set. But we got the top 32 decks to look at, as usual. And the decks that had two or more copies in that sample size, we had four burn, three amulet titan, two blue-white control, and also a blue-white stone blade control. We had two Urza Paradoxical Outcome decks and one Wurza deck. And I don't even know if it's fair to group them together besides just kind of the engine they're relying on is similar uh, and the same with Urza, of course. And there was two mono green Tron decks. I also noticed a bunch of interesting one-ofs. Like there was Gabe Nassif playing this like four-color Sahili deck with three Primeval Titans, a single of uh, Oko, from the new Throne of Eldraine set. It was like a blue-red As Foretold Electro Dominance deck. There was an Is It Flash deck with Brineborn Cutthroat, a Brazen Bower, a couple Kiki Jikis, and a single Mystic Sanctuary in the mana base. There's a five-colored Invisit deck. There's an eight-whack deck, and even the classic combos of Living End and Ad Nauseam made appearances in this top 32. Anything you guys noticed that I missed in that uh, top 32 list or that you thought was cool or weird about this sample? Well, whenever I see a modern challenger or any M2GO results, I just basically scan for any decks that I, I can play. So that Kiki Jiki <laughs> deck definitely jumped out to me. Really cool to see Brazen Borrowers already appearing in M2GO results. I think it's fun to see 8-Whack appear as a one of. It's fun that there are now two or more competitive Goblin decks out there. Because before 8-Whack existed and was barely a Goblin deck, sort of on the fringes and like had Goblin acceleration and maybe tribal but not really so it's fun to see a different unique goblins deck move on in the black red goblins deck and eight wax still stick around all right i'm prepared to say it i think we could have said this a couple weeks ago but it's more true now than ever five color niv mizzet i think is the real deal shout out to cave dan and the faithless brewing podcast for brewing this deck up because it's just really impressive oh yeah that's gonna stick around five color trade binder it turns out there's a bunch of really good gold cards in Modern. Turns out. So we'll start uh, going from the top down in our top eight. So in first place was Blue-White Control. 
which seemed to be hedging a little bit uh, to the current meta. Had a cup, two main deck spell snares and a timely reinforcements to shore up some aggro matchups. Second place, a mono green Tron deck, again with a pretty contemporary creature base. Had three Thrag Tusk. Uh, shaved all the walking ballistas and the Ulamogs, and also fit in a spatial contortion main. It had four Veil of Summer and two Weather the Storm in the side, which I thought was novel. Third place was Bant Company. Had a couple main deck Oko and the kind of a typical, if you could call it typical, Bant value creature suite with four Stoneforge Mystic. I'm going to do a little bit of a cold shot and say that Oko is just going to be a mainstay in modern. I have played against it in Wurza, which we'll get into later. But it was so very good in that deck, and it is a very powerful card. One of its abilities that turns a creature turns a permanent into a three-three is a plus. When on other planeswalkers, it might have been a minus, and it being a plus is so very good. And we don't need to get into this. I don't need to go over Oko and its abilities, but I think we will continue to see them show up in modern, and that they will just forever be a part of the format. Mm. I mean, I faced him down in standard. And that was something. So, and it clearly seems to be doing something in modern. So we'll keep our eyes on it for sure. Listen to your favorite modern podcast, a dive down to keep your ear to the ground on modern for future Oko news and sightings. And frankly, I'll be happy to see him. He is cute. Oh yeah. Oko watch 2019. This is your number one spot for it. Hashtag Oko watch 2019. All right. Fourth place. We had Jund doing Jund things. It's Jund. Uh, two Dark Confidants made a reappearance in the main deck. Besides that, looked like a Jund deck to me. Fifth place, uh, more Jund, but Death Shadow Jund. Testing out a couple new cards in the main deck. There were Singletons of Murderous Rider and Bone Crusher Giant and a, an Embereth Shieldbreaker in the side. Sure. Interesting. I guess cheap artifact removal that you get then get to cash in for a creature, a little beater. Okay, sixth place, Burn. Doing Burn things. Looks like Burn. Seventh place, this Urza Paradoxical Outcome deck. So I don't think we've actually talked about this deck if at all on the dive down yet. So I think we should talk about it just a little bit. So this version, this deck kind of existed a little bit before Throne of Eldraine. But I think there it's already featuring playsets of two new cards in Emery, Lurker of the Lock which we talked about on our uh, spoil- full spoiler episode, and also for Witching Well. Witching Well is an artifact, a blue artifact. Single blue mana casting cost. When it hits the battlefield, you get to scry two. And then for three and a blue later, you can sacrifice the well to draw two cards. So it has kind of initial value early and some value late. So what this deck wants to do is cast a bunch of cheap artifacts that have some incidental value typically. So there's like Arkham's Astrolabe, which replaces itself and fixes your mana. Engineered Explosives, which can be cast for zero or can be cast for uh, you know colored mana to get rid of troublesome permanents on the other side. Everflowing Chalice, Mishra's Bauble, the Witching Well we just talked about, and of course Mox Opal. And then Mox Amber is now able to make an appearance because Urza, Sai, Sahili, Sublime, Artificer, and Emery are all legendary blue permanents. So Mox Amber is much more runnable, apparently, now. And so and the, all of these zero-mana artifacts that you're casting are essentially Mox Sapphires, if there's an Urza in play. And Sai and Sahili are creating value when you cast all these cheap artifacts by creating 1-1 tokens as you're doing so. But the real engine is Paradoxical Outcome. 
Yeah, and this card, I don't. I can't believe I've never looked at this or thought of this until now. I'm going to explain this card to you, and you're going to ask yourselves, wait a minute, isn't that way too busted and going to lead to something broken? So that is three generic mana and a single blue, instant. Return any number of target non-land, non-token permanents you control to their owner's hands. Draw a card for each card returned to your hand this way. So like Shane just mentioned, there's a bunch of zero drop or one drop artifacts, and you're able to pump this spell out, return thing to your hand, draw a bunch of cards. That sounds like eggs. And eggs is banned in modern because it's too good. It's too slow and too consistent. Yeah. And then you get so much incidental value off of the artifact engine cards like you know Science Healy. You have Emery and Urza serving as you know powerful ways to get your engine online and to create a ton of mana and to get the artifacts you need. You know, Emery, when there are artifacts in your graveyard, can cast them from there. So zero mana artifacts. Sure, why not? Yeah, so Obviously, one way I compare this to Second Sunrise, which returns artifacts from the graveyard to play that were put there. But this is blowing my mind because that at least can be hit up by graveyard hate or at least has to be sacked and put in the graveyard. There's some sort of level of interaction. This is just returning things that you put into play. It's so good. It's so good. This deck's going to get banned. Something's going to happen. Yeah, this deck is quite good. I think that there are a number of pros and very good players already posting a bunch of lists that they're testing with. LSV posted something on Twitter. He was like, yeah, I went nine and one with this over two leagues. Canister was posting decks with this, of course. So it's a powerful engine. We're going to see it become even more refined and start winning some events, I suspect. And then last but not least, uh, Blue-White Stoneblade, which is essentially a Blue-White control deck with the Stoneforge Mystic package in there. So what are y'all thinking about this? Like how, you know, we, we have a new set that's making an impact. What are you thinking about how modern is looking right now? Do you think the paradoxical outcome deck is looking dangerous? Do you think that there is tools out there to fight it? I think it's a little too soon for me personally to evaluate how the new set is going to impact the format because people are literally just getting started with testing and innovation. But I, I can't help but feel like the week or two leading up to Eldraine release modern kind of cooled down and people were doing a lot less testing the 5-0 dumps were getting a little less diverse in the type of decks that they had in there so i'm hoping that eldraine kind of breeds some new life into the format because i feel like people are starting to kind of sleep on it yeah like i mentioned i think that this urza deck is bad news and i don't i personally don't like urza either but paradoxical outcome with all these eggs is just not a good situation and we'll see what happens to it i think the rest of the top eight's totally fine and cool to me control got first place tron's fine company's fine two junt s desk burn these are all fine decks i don't love some of them but i don't think they're busted in any sort of way i just prefer them yeah i'm excited to see what happens oko is a super challenging card to face down in standard there's definitely more tools to remove it in modern but it's still a very good three drop and an even better two drop when you have some mana ramp for it so We'll see. Listen, if we see Oko, we will let you know. Oko Watch 2019, your number one headquarters, social media, just a lifestyle page for Oko Watch 2019 hashtag. We're going to take a quick break now. And when we return, we are going to dive into Mono Red Prison. Lock you up, throw away the key. So 
So podcasting is an audio format. You can't see us, but I can tell you that Zach is the happiest I have ever seen him. And I've known this guy in person for like years at this point. And he is grinning from ear to ear. He's wearing like a, a suit with a badge. Uh, he's got a baton, twirling some keys. Zach, what's up, buddy? Well, as you know, I've been promoted from warden to grand warden. It's a pretty big deal. Is that an official title? Uh, well, I mean, they couldn't like give me a pa- on paper promotion, but they told me I was grand warden. <laughs> Multi-branch warden. Yeah, yeah. So Monorail Prison is the deck of choice for Zach, and I think has been for a few months now. And as we were learning about this deck, having you to bounce ideas off of and, and kind of do some quick learning on the fly was super helpful. Yeah, obviously, I've been excited since we opened the show. I love this deck. It was so fun to get to play the deck I know for it and just like not to look up strategy or watch videos or like have to relearn a strategy, but to get to dig down and play what I want to play and feel like I am being able to share with others and help others. And honestly, this is all thanks to our patron, Evan B., who suggested this on their topics. And thank you so much, Evan. This was so much fun to do. So like with our Eldrazi Tron deck dive, when you are at the highest tier of our Patreon, every six months or so, you're able to suggest or request a topic for us to go over. Uh, Evan wanted us to go over Power of Prison. Made great sense. So thanks again, Evan. Trust out, Evan. So what is Mono Red Prison? Let's talk about first, what's the deck trying to do? And I think to start us off, we really need to understand a larger question, and that is, what are prison decks at all? That makes sense. Yeah, so prison refers to a a certain genre of decks, and prison exists outside the aggro control mid-range strategy. We can talk about where it fits into that overall, but that's a different designation than those three titles. So prison refers to strategies that attempt to lock the opponent out of the game and prevent them from playing magic as we know it, and that can happen in a few different ways. So typically decks that are called prison decks run Chalice of the Void. We have a whole episode about this card, episode 16. I think it's a pretty good one for what it's worth. Check it out. So that stops your opponent from resolving spells. Ensnaring Bridge, also a big part of prison decks, typically putting points for attacking. So if you're not attacking, you're not casting spells, typically you're not killing your opponent. But how do you win from there? That can vary deck to deck. Uh, before Urza got printed, the worst style decks were doing things like looping Ipnu Rivulet to r- mill an opponent with Crucible of Worlds. There's you know slow grinding decks like that. I've heard decks like Ponza or Scred sometimes referred to as prison decks, but because they're constantly removing creatures and destroying lands and preventing you from playing magic in different ways. Blood Moon lock, uh, fits into here because Blood Moon is a big part of prison strategies as well if they can run it. And this is a deck that is running both Chalice, Bridge, and Blood Moon. But in general, a prison deck is one that's looking to prevent you from playing magic somehow, and then after they prevented you or while they're actively preventing you, put some sort of game plan or win con of their own into action. So people may have faced down decks like Ponza lately, or perhaps even Scred, or like a white-red enchantment-based lock deck. On I've seen that on Magic Online more often than I thought I would, honestly. But how how does how does Mono Red Prison differ from these other decks that people may know a little bit better? So Mono Red Prison is a little faster because it has fast mana in these rituals and Simeon Spirit Guide, which we'll talk about very shortly. But in general, it's red and red wants to go fast. So you're getting down your lock pieces very quickly or ideally a lock piece and a threat in some order, depending on what your matchup is. So you're stopping the opponent from doing their stuff and then playing a very efficient card like Legion Warboss or Goblin Rabble Master, which make creatures every turn, so you're building an army very quickly. Or you can do things like 
fast mana play planeswalkers, quickly tick them up, ultimate them, use a car and lock somebody out. Sometimes you can be a little slower with Mono Red Prison as well, and you can get a Blood Moon and a Chalice down and really knock them out. And there you can do things like a slow Death by a Thousand Cuts type strategy, where you're doing two to four damage a turn, maybe with Hazard, Eidolon, Ramanop Ruins, whatever you have, and just slowly doing damage while they can't interact with you. Do other prison decks rely on Karn the Great Creator, like Mono Red can as well? As a card, of course, we'll be talking about later. I think it's really become just a, if not auto-include, then you have to explain why you aren't including it in your deck. Because the lock it provides is just, it's it's not so consistent that it can happen all the time, but there are times Mono Red Prison where I play it in the past and like have my opponent on the ropes locked out, but not able to do anything about it, right? So that's where you can Karn, minus, grab a walking ballista, and then all of a sudden you have a clock while your opponent can't do anything. Is that something that other prison decks are doing as well, though? Yeah, I think so. Or is that something that's kind of unique to Mono Red? I think that Scred's doing it if you want to include that. I think Pons is doing it if you want to include that. I think there are definitely Urza builds that do that as well. I think that in general, prison strategies don't need Karn, but it fits so nicely into the plan that... I, I, once again, I feel like your deck would have to have a reason to not be running it. And there could be a reason, definitely, but it, it seems like an auto-include unless you have a different strategy in mind. Sure. So do you want to do what we usually do, where we get into some of the cards that make up the, the meat of the deck, and then we can kind of go over strategy considerations and things like that? Yeah, let's talk about cards. I love the cards. The cards, the, the cards are fun. There's so many good red cards. Stan, it sounds like you want to go fast to me. Gotta go fast. You know... I love going fast. You gotta go fast. So one of the first things you do in this deck to go fast is use some fast mana acceleration spells. Desperate Ritual, Pyretic Ritual, basically functional copies of one another with a subtle difference that Desperate Ritual has Splice into Arcane. These are both one in red to produce three red mana. Yeah, so the Splice spell is very rarely relevant, but you just run four of it, a, a four of Desperate Ritual and one of Pyretic Ritual, the one without Splice, just because sometimes you do get to Splice. So we mentioned one in a red to add three red, but splice is if you have two in your hand, basically you pay four mana, cast one dust ritual, show your opponent the other, and then you make six mana and you get to keep one of the rituals. So from there, you could even play it to go up to seven if you wanted to. So that's rarely a thing, but sometimes you get to do things like do that, play a Chandra plus her and put a chalice on two, same turn. Like, and that's obviously more of a fringe thing, but it opens up lines like that where you previously... And then, you know, even plus Chandra, play the ritual, have five mana, Karn, minus, grab something. It just, there's a lot of different lines that the splice opens, and it's it's not happening very often, but the few times it happens, it's just extra, basically. In testing this deck, I wasn't even thinking about splice into Arcane, and maybe that's a failure on my part. Maybe just the opportunity didn't present itself. How do you use that mechanic in Magic Online? So you right-click the spell, cast splice, and then it'll make you choose the card, and then it'll ask you to pay the mana cost. So here you have to have both. You right-click, cast, cast a splice. It'll make you click the other one and say pay two colorless and two red. Or pay two generic mana and two red mana. So one of the other very important fast mana acceleration spells in this deck is modern classic, my favorite monkey, Simeon Spirit Guide. Probably bannable. Probably bannable. I mean, it's two and a red for a 2-2. I'm not sure why people are so scared of it. (laughs) Three mana for a 2-2 is not a very good rate. I mean, and like, no flying, no trample, no hexproof? Like, come on. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. What's that ability? Exile Simeon Spirit Guide from your hand? Add a red mana. Is that free mana? 
Is it free real estate? Free real estate. So what's interesting about this is Simeon Spirit Guide is the only mana ramp you can get on turn one because the rituals cost one and a red. So if you want to ramp something out on turn one, you're either relying on the Gemstone Cavern that we'll talk about later or the Simeon Spirit Guide by exiling it from your hand to create that red mana. I really love the fast mana aspect of this deck, by the way. Essentially, all of my keepable hands really seem to rely on powering something out quickly, if at all possible. I was able to cast a turn one Karn the Great Creator about four times in like 18 games of play. It was This is not the norm, but that was ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. The fast mana is what makes this deck different than a deck like Scred, for example, among other things, in that without the fast mana, sometimes this deck can draw hands where it's like three lands and three three drops. And it's like, oh, well, this is not, this is like a bad mid-range deck, right? But because you can do things like cast a Blood Moon on turn one or two, cast Goblin Rob Master on turn one or two, Bridge, Chalice, yeah, et cetera, et cetera, it's what makes it different and what makes it especially powerful because you have these explosive, enormous on mid-range-like plays. Yeah, I think what you're basically getting at when you talk about what makes it different is that the fast mana gives this deck a way to be very proactive. Right, exactly. And you're keeping opening hands with a plan. And yeah. usually, like, I think some controller prison strategies maybe seem a little more reactive, but not so with this one. No blue. Yeah, and I didn't feel like this deck had a lot of ways to interact with the board. And so it really seemed to me to require getting that lockdown sooner rather than later in some way, shape, or form, whether that's a chalice, whether that's a bridge, whether that's a blood moon. And so that fast mana was the powerhouse of the deck to me because it enabled you to enact your game plan ahead of what your opponent was expecting you to be able to do. Absolutely. And that inability to interact comes from a card we're going to talk about in a second, Chalice of the Void, because you can't run one drops in this deck. And you'd love to run Lightning Bolt, and like you can honestly run 16, 17 mountains in this deck, so you could consider running Scred, but you can't because you want to put Chalice of the Void on one as often as possible, as fast as possible, usually in the dark. Obviously, there are some decks where it's not good on one, or like you know the mirror match, et cetera, et cetera. But in general, Chalice on one early is a very, very good play. So because of that, you can't run your own one drops because then you'll you'll hamstring yourself. And sometimes you have to bolt instead of Chalice on one, and then they go off, or you later draw a bolt that's dead. Yeah, so let's talk about those lock pieces a little bit. We, you know, we had a whole episode on Chalice of the Void. We'll briefly go over what it does. So essentially, it's an XX casting cost artifact, and you're going to play four of these in, in a deck like this, right? Absolutely. So Chalice of the Void enters the battlefield with X charge counters on it. So if you pay two mana, it enters with one charge counter on it. And whenever a player, any player tries to cast a spell with a CMC equal to the number of charge counters on Chalice of the Void, it gets countered. So the dream or the desire often in, in modern is to play a fast mana enabled Chalice of the Void on one. On turn one. Yeah, on turn one. So you don't have any one CMC spells. Modern decks typically rely on a good number of one CMC spells, so that can really put a damper on the other player's plan because they had a handful of one CMC spells. Exactly. And then moving on to, once again, my favorite card in Modern. I've been talking about it since I feel like it has to be episode one of this podcast. It's Blood Moon. The fact that Blood Moon didn't come up on our last episode had some of our friends and fans concerned that we had been kidnapped and replaced. <laughs> That's how often Zach and I talk about Blood Moon. We like Blood Moon. We like Blood Moon. So 
everyone knows it. We'll go over it real quick just in case anyone is forgetting it intentionally. Blood Moon is two in a red, enchantment, non-basic lands or mountains. Full stop. They have their normal name still. A hollowed fountain is still a hollowed fountain. It just has a little red mana symbol in the text box instead of anything else. I think they keep, they keep flavor text. That is not rules text. <laughs> if anyone cares. So this is one of the backbones of the deck because playing a Blood Moon on turn one is just so good sometimes. Because even a deck like Blue Eye Control, which you know has a good amount of basics, might keep a hand with two fetches and a shock or two fetches, a colonnade, a shock, and a colonnade, etc. So they can get to them, but not if you can stop them from getting to them. And this works versus a lot of decks, right? Like even Jund, if you can get a Blood Moon down early and they can't get their forest or their swamp, you can keep them off of a lot of their really good spells. Yeah, there are a number of times when my game plan, if I could at all try to enact it in this fashion, was to be able to play a fast Blood Moon. You know, especially games two or games three when you know your opponent and you're like, the only way I'm winning this or one of the primary ways I'm winning this game is by having a turn two Blood Moon, perhaps, especially when I'm on the play. When, though, do you start thinking about removing this card, y'all? Because it's not just universally awesome, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, the first time I played the second in LGS, which is at this point almost, I feel like a year ago, I turned one Blood Moon somebody and they were on Mono Green Elves and they did not care about it. And I proceeded to lose both those games because that's how it goes. But in general, so I would remove all my copies against these following decks for a rule of thumb. Mono Red Prowess, they like maybe you cut off their blue red, the Fiery Islet, but that's not worth it. Blue Red Tempo decks, in general, I would take them out as well. They are able to run their own, and if they think you have one, they'll grab the basics, and it's not worth trying to level two them and maybe outthink them. Three blue for Cryptic can be a lot, but they have other stuff. Remains also not very good against this deck, etc. So I'd rather bring in some sort of interactive pieces or pieces to punish them as opposed to a Blood Moon. Goblins and Merfolk as well, I would cut a Blood Moon, but those decks are running a ton of basics and are pretty linear, and Aether Val gets around it. I would cut it versus elves as well, unless the opponent had a really greedy elves mana base, which I've seen three color elf floating around. And if your opponent is playing green, black, and green white lands, leave me a copy of Blood Moon or two in. Against the following decks, I would be willing to cut some copies depending if I was in the play or draw or needed cards to bring in. Against Burn, still, I've mentioned before, I think Blood Moon can be good. Taking them off their white spells, Helix and Paro's Charm, both very powerful. Jund, also a good thing to keep it in against sometimes. Obviously, the later Blood Moon is not that good because they can fetch for their basics and they run an okay amount. But if you can get down early, like I said, catch them unawares, they can have a really hard time removing anything else then. Against Blue-White Stoneblade, the, or Blue-White Control, the, that, that, that's sort of existing right now, I think it's worth it to keep a few copies because, once again, they can you know draw their basics, they can fetch around it, but an early Blood Moon still really does get them. Death Shadow, they only run like two basics, and I just... I would consider shaving one because you don't need multiples because they usually cannot get rid of it. They can't make blue. Yeah, I think one of the other factors when deciding when to side out Blood Moon is if you're on the play or the draw. Exactly. I think in general, Blood Moon on turn one or two is pretty good, especially against the decks that Zach listed you keep it in for. But even if you're on the draw, like against something like Jund or other greedy three-color decks, or Tron for that matter, I think because you're able to accelerate a Blood Moon out, you still want to keep like some number of them. Maybe not the full four, but at least one or two. Exactly, yeah, which is why, yeah, all those decks were cards where I would shave a copy or two or be more open to, because while it's good, it's not as good later, and you don't want them usually redundant pieces. 
Do you agree, Zach, though, that if you're on the play against these decks, you're probably playing three to four post-board? Yeah, it depends. Um, Against control, maybe I would consider about force and wonder if I want to run rituals into a blood moon into something and maybe would want a little more stability or to spread out my threats. But in general, if I'm on the draw versus the play, I will definitely shave an extra blood moon or maybe even a chalice in situation as well. Moving on, we have a quick cousin, twin, mm, clone? Stick. Mm. Embodiment. The embodiment. Perhaps even a practitioner of the magic? We have Magus of the Moon. Two in a red for a 2-2. Two, two. It has Blood Moon's ability, non-basic lands or mountains. Blood Moon, but a 2-2 two, two creature. Easier to remove as they're able to get, you know, maybe a, a Plains to a path it or a Swamp to Fatal push it. But I've seen people sometimes run three moon, one Magus. I've seen a 2-2 two, two split. I've seen four moon with two Magus in the side. I've seen six, seven moon decks, etc. Wow. You can do whatever you want with it. I personally think it's a little easy to kill, but there are certain metas where it really shines. And if you think Blood Moon's really good, why wouldn't you want more copies of it? Yeah, this is one of those cards that I think is probably better in a creature tutor deck. Hmm. Sure. It's run in Legacy over Blood Moon sometimes because they have access to the recruiter effects to grab toughness two or less creatures. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. it's better for that because it can be grabbed. But overall, I think in Modern, there's more creature removal than enchantment removal. Yeah, makes sense. So the next lock piece that we talked about earlier was Ensnaring Bridge, which was a three-mana artifact, and all it reads is creatures with power greater than the number of cards in your hand can't attack. Pretty brutal card to face down if you don't have any artifact or multi-permanent removal. Uh, There's three main now, and the fourth now because of Karn the Great Creator, is usually in the sideboard because you can tutor it up with Karn in case you find a Karn before you find that bridge. Yeah, in general, this card's very good in this deck because of all the fast mana we mentioned, because you're playing these spells having your hand shrink down. So typically, you know, we're spending three cards to get one effect would be an overall downside. This deck is able to use Insaring Bridge to make it an upside. So you can have one or two cards in your hand by turn two or three, and some decks are just blocked by that totally. This is one of those cards that I never felt like I needed to ramp out. There are very few times when you're you know, needing to stop creatures from attacking early. I was not always happy when Bridge was my primary ramp plan. I wanted to have something like a Blood Moon, a Karn the Great Creator, a Chalice of the Void to use my fast mana on because I found that Ensnaring Bridge just naturally on three was almost always going to be good enough. Sure, absolutely. And by that time, you have more cards out of your hand, too. Oh, definitely. And like, I think there are probably some times where if you're mulliganing against an aggro deck and you have a a five or a four even that can do this, probably worth keeping over trying to get something else. But in general, it is, I think, definitely the weakest of the early game lock pieces, definitely. So we've mentioned Karn the Great Creator a few times, and we're going to get to it later. But let's talk about some of these other artifacts that are part of the Wishboard prison components we've we've mentioned these a number of times in other episodes but we'll quickly go over these as well i'm gonna start with my favorite you guys can hit some of these other ones okay so we've got microsynth lattice it's a six mana artifact so this is one of your late game lock pieces you aren't typically getting this down early it reads all permanents are artifacts in addition to their other types and so what that does is it makes every permanent an artifact combined with karn the great creator's static ability makes your opponent unable to tap or use any of the activated abilities on any of their permanents. So they can still swing in with their creatures, but that's about it. So if you have the board locked up with a bridge and then you get Karn the Great Creator down and then Microsynth Lattice, they are essentially locked out of the game and you're good to go to find your whatever piece of 
tech you have to finish them off, whether that's a walking ballista, a Chandra, whatever. Yeah, one of the things that's so nasty about Lattice is that Karn's static ability is non-symmetrical. So the player who controls the Karn can still tap their mana, but the opponent cannot. So one of the ways to beat this card in particular is if you have artifact removal in your hand, you literally have to float the mana until what when they cast Lattice, and then after Lattice resolves before steps move on, you remove it with like a braid or K command or whatever artifact hate is available to you. Yeah, the funny thing is is that force of vigor can't even work if you want to pay it for no mana because the casting requires uh, ditching a green card mm-hmm. and the second line of text on Microsoft Lattice reads all cards that aren't on the battlefield spells and permanents are colorless. So that's just kind of a little bit of annoyance too for no good reason. In general, I found this card to be pretty challenging to play with at first. And we may have mentioned this before, but this is a a level up card for me. And I found that as I got more familiar with Karn decks in general, I learned to play with Lattice a little better and knowing when to fetch for it or when to play it safe. Yeah, absolutely. Final thought on this. It's really hard to play like Stansted just because you aren't playing Karn, minusing and going for this all the time in this deck. You're really playing Karn, trying to either stabilize or gain some value. And then when you have them on the back foot, you lattice and they don't come back into the game. And another really helpful part of that or how Karn's getting value is liquid metal coating. Oh, man. Yeah, lo- I love this card. I've, I fell in love with this card. <laughs> so tap, target permanent becomes an artifact in addition to its other types until end of turn. And obviously this is good with Karn because if you do it to something they control, that's no longer, a card can't do anything for them anymore. So you can do it to a Planeswalker on their upkeep so they can't activate on their turn. Do it to a land on their upkeep so they have to try to burn the mana right then. You can also tap it and then plus Karn to start destroying zero mana cost things, mm-hmm. which include lands. Mm-hmm. So you can start the dream is to turn one Karn minus grab this on turn two, start destroying their land. It's like your better Ponza. I did that multiple times somehow. I was able to pull that off, and it is a very early scoop on the other side of the battlefield. Oh, ain't that the truth? Yeah, that felt really good. Liquid Metal Coating is so flexible. Uh, it's one of those things, we mentioned in a past episode, but it is what you grab with Karn because it's so flexible. It allows you to turn off troublesome permanents on the other side of the battlefield, and it only costs two. So it's very easy to cast if you're able to untap with Karn the Great Creator, unlike Microsoft Lattice, which costs six. Up next is Torpor Orb. Again, it's another two-mana artifact. Creatures entering the battlefield don't cause abilities to trigger. So this is something that is a bit more situational. It comes in handy against decks like Spirits, Humans, uh, Bant, Soul Herder. Where's a... Yeah, it stops the words of combo. This is a card that you should not be afraid to sideboard in and take out of your wishboard if you think it's going to be helpful, especially against a deck like Wurza, which can be a little faster than Karn maybe. And like, obviously, if you're if you have Karn there, you're winning already. Things like that. So if you are really worried about your opponent's fast coming to play things like against humans, I would take this out of my wishboard and bring it into my main board during games two and three because of how impactful it is. So I would not do that for coding or for latest. But I would do it also for the next one, which is a Sorcerer's Spyglass, which is a two-mana artifact. As it enters the battlefield, look at an opponent's hand, then choose any card name. Activated abilities of sources with the card name can't be activated unless they're mana abilities. So this is a Pithing Needle that costs one more, and that's helpful because, like we said, you can't run Pithing Needle because you run Chalice. Straight up. 
So it gives you the benefit of seeing someone's hand, but then this is another card where if my opponent was doing some sort of weird combo thing or I knew they had walkers and wanted to get ahead of them, I brought this in versus Jund in control and was happy both times. I didn't have a Sorceress Spyglass in the list that I ran in my first league, and I really wish that I had. It, yeah. wasn't in, it wasn't in kind of one of the default lists I was looking at, and I very much missed it because, like you mentioned, it's such a powerful and flexible prison component. It really helps you maybe buy a turn that you need by, say, shutting off a Teferi 3 so they can't bounce you know, your Karn the Great Creator or something else you want to have stick. Yeah, absolutely. I found that... a. A big issue with this deck, we'll go over that later, is it's really weak to Planeswalkers. And the thing is, you lock your opponent down, but what, what gets through the lock is Planeswalkers. So if you lock your opponent down and then they resolve a walker first, that's like, oh, crap, that's my game plan. And you did it first. That's bad for me. So there are times they have a Liliana or like Shay mentioned, a three cost of fairy. And then you really need to get out ahead of that. So Karn minus, and then if you can even play that on the same turn using Rituals or Fast Mana, right out of you. So you have down your Karn, and you're able to stop their walker. That is such a huge tempo swing. So another reason why I would consider bringing this in main, just because of how pivotal it can be. For sure. And I know I just mentioned that Teferi could bounce your Karn. That's not possible. But it definitely, you have a lot of artifact pieces you want to keep on the board uh, when you're facing down any number of decks. Teferi can bounce Bridge, which is how I often yes. lose to that deck, because they bounce Bridge into my hand and then swing with two Spellcallers and a Snapcaster. Exactly. Not that I've lost that recently or anything. All right. So let's get into these threats, because this is the fun part of the deck, which you're actually beating down with. I'm going to start because i got to start with Goblin Rebel Master, one of my favorite cards to cast uh, during Con Standard when I played Green Red Monsters. And you get to ramp it out, just like you did in uh, Green Red Monsters when you had Elvish Mystic. So it's a 2 and a red for a 2-2 two, two Goblin Warrior. All other goblins, you control attack each combat if able. At the beginning of your combat, on your turn, create a 1-1 red goblin creature token with haste, and whenever Goblin Rabble Master attacks, it gets plus 1, plus 0 until end of turn for every other attacking goblin. So, turn 1 that you play it makes a 1-1 goblin that has to attack. Turn 2, if you the coast is clear, you make another goblin, and then you swing with Goblin Rabble Master, and you're swinging for 4 from the Rabble Master and 2 from your tokens. That gets really big really fast if the coast is clear. And if the coast isn't clear, then you can just sort of sit back and have your army of tokens sort of grow wide. Zach, you're better at explaining this than me. I'd like you to explain how you use the power of Ensnaring Bridge to kind of go really wide with your Rebel Master to finish your opponent off. Because that's challenging for me to understand. Yeah, so this works similar to Legion Warboss, which is a card you also run in this deck anywhere from two to four. So it's four, Goblin Rabble Master. Legion Warboss works a little similarly as well, where on your beginning of combat, you make a token. The thing is, Legion Warboss doesn't get pumped. It has Mentor, so it starts making the tokens bigger, not itself. But in general, the thing with the Snaring Bridge is creatures with power equal to or greater than the number of cards in your hand can't attack. So you have these creatures that quote-unquote have to attack, but if you have zero cards in your hand, they literally cannot, so they don't. So what you're able to do is on your turn, you pick up a card for your draw and you put it down. And then these cards keep making tokens at the beginning of your combat that don't attack and they stick around. So I've been in situations where we're in a lock because I, no one can attack because of Ensnaring Bridge. And usually there's a Blood Moon or a Chalice in play as well. So over time, you just keep creating these goblins on your combat step. And then one turn, when you have enough, you hold a card in hand, move to combat and swing with, you know, 18, 20, 22 <laughs> goblins. And it really does have to be that much sometimes. So many Zach tokens. 
So many Zack tokens. Move to combat, make a Zack. Coming soon to uh, LGS near you. One of the cool things about these goblin makers is that they're non-legendary. So you don't necessarily have to wait till turn 18 or 20 to produce all those tokens. Sometimes you'll just cast a Legion War Boss and a couple Rabble Masters, and then in a few turns, you've got an army of gobos. One of the things you need to be a little bit careful with is that if you have multiple Goblin Rabble Masters, if you have a Goblin Rabble Master and a Legion War Boss, and you don't have that ensnaring bridge down, and you want to sort of chip in with like one token at a time, if Rabble Master is out, every other attacking goblin has to attack if able. So don't hurt yourself. Don't have a Legion War Boss that's forced to attack and you weren't ready for it and it you know just gets eaten by a Tarmogoyf. So play smart, read the text on your cards, because I don't always. Absolutely. Goblin Rabble Master is a card that is really sometimes best played after combat, even though sometimes your brain goes, no, I want the value, I want the token. But then, like Shane said, all of a sudden, Legion War Boss is swinging, and you're going, wait, Mentor Trigger, I don't want that. But it's too late, you can't take it back, it's MTGO. It is worth noting that the clock for Legion War Boss is a little bit slower than Rabble Master. So Rabble Master does one damage first turn because the token, then six damage, then eight damage, then ten damage. While Legion War Boss, assuming the same clock no interaction, does one, five, seven, and nine. So if you absolutely need to go fast and you can play either, play Rabble Master. It is worth noting, though, this is sort of a level two thing. If you think your opponent has a removal and you have both in your hand, play the War Boss first, so that'll eat the removal over the Rabble Master. Because if they don't remove that one, that's still a ton of damage, and they have to destroy it. So it's better to have that one eat the removal and have the other more damage-inducing card come after. Up next, this deck does run Seasoned Pyromancer. One red-red for a 2-2. Two, two. When Spyro enters the battlefield, discard two cards, then draw two cards for each non-land card discarded this way. Create a 1-1 red elemental creature token. And then it's got this very sneaky line of text that I think a lot of people miss, including myself early on. <laughs> for three red-red, you may exile Seasoned Pyromancer from your graveyard to create two 1-1 red elemental creature tokens. So personally, I felt like this may have been the weakest creature in the deck and really shined when games went late as a way to either refill your hand to look for more answers or to pitch redundant copies of certain spells and make a couple extra bodies on the board what was your experience with this creature what i liked about this card is that it felt like it was doing two things one it was refilling your hand and two it was allowing you to cycle away redundant prison pieces so if I had some extra blood moons that I didn't feel were in danger from permanent or enchantment removal, if I had extra ensnaring bridges that I didn't feel were in danger from some artifact removal or so on, I was pretty happy to cycle them away with the, the ditch provision on Season Pyromancer and draw some fresh cards and get some tokens out of the deal as well. That's really how I saw Season Pyromancer. This wasn't a card you were ramping into. You weren't happy to play this, this card early. I think it's just kind of a general value card in something of the way that Bedlam Reveler kind of is. For a while there, people are running four Legion War Boss for a Rabble Master, and Legion War Boss has gone on two copies, and we see two to three season Pyromancer. I think in general, it's the same mana cost, and you can two reds usually not an issue in the deck, especially if you're making three mana in general. 
So it fills a little more utility there. Like you mentioned, being able to ditch redundant lock pieces is very good. There are some times, though, where it can be a little iffy and not so good. There's some times where I'm playing against Infect, for example, and I have Bridge out, and I have zero cards, then I draw Pyromancer. <laughs> and I have to cast it because I have to be at zero cards, and then I draw two cards, and I can, can't cast either of them. So I'm sitting there like a dummy with two cards in hand as my Infect opponent bowls me over. So it's a little unfortunate that the draw trigger isn't a may, and you do have to draw no matter what. And it is worth it to be mindful, thinking about would I rather just hold on to this, maybe have one more mana. And like you know, there are times where you get a ritual and a, sp- a spirit guide, and you just go spirit guide ritual back to zero cards, your go. But in general, it's good, but it isn't just something to run out and have fun with. It is a really complicated card to play with. Do you think it's worth it? Do you think that it's you think that it's it's worth the the issues that it may cause because it's, it's not a card that you want to ramp out. And then, and you know, since ensnaring bridge is such an important part of your lock, like you said, it can complicate that. That seems risky. When I, pl- when I got the five, with the second I got before I wasn't running it. And when I played in Denver, I wasn't running it, but there are plenty of five O lists that do run it. So it's one of those things where I think it's, because I ran Eidolon main, and some people run those on the side, we'll talk about it in a second. I don't know that it's inherently better than anything. I think it gives the deck fun options, and the flashback option to, to make blockers later in the game to try to stabilize and draw into a chalice or a bridge or whatever it is that you need to win that turn is good. And I, you know, it's definitely bought me the turn I need. But in general, I don't know if it 100% needs to belong in this deck, but I think it is definitely a fun tool to use. It hasn't been outclassed or clearly been replaceable by anything else. Sure. So you, you mentioned Eidolon of the Great Revel, Revel, a card a lot of us know. It's been in burn for years now since Theros, so it's a red, red 2-2. Another 2-2 <laughs> in this deck. It's an enchantment creature spirit. And, you know, of course, whenever anyone casts a spell with CMC 3 or less, it deals 2 damage to that player. So you've mentioned you've played it in the main. I played it in the side. Is that something that you think is kind of a flex spot between it and maybe seasoned Pyromancer now? Exactly. Or more Legion War Boss if you want to go all in on the four those four Rebel Master. In general, this card can also hurt you in a similar way to Pyromancer because you run, like we mentioned, a ton of two drop spells and a ton of three drop spells. Mm-hmm. So I've had games where I have this out and I'm at two and I rip a bridge from the top and a bridge would actually be the sickest play right there. But I literally cannot play it. And, like, you know, you can always move to combat, attack, hope they block, and then they don't take the bait, and it's, oh, well, you win now. Like, you, you didn't block my creature. So it's good. It's It can definitely punish things like Urza if you can get it down fast enough. Like, those eggs cost zero, right, or one. So if they dump a bunch, they can take up to eight, ten damage sometimes. But it depends on your meta. It depends on what you want to do. It is too red, and this deck does run some colorless lands and gemstone caverns, which we'll talk about. So there can be times where you can have an Eidolon that you can't cast because you can't make two red. So I like it. I'm personally a big fan of the card, and I honestly find myself citing in like a ton of matchups. I don't know if that's because I was being smart or just wanted to play with Eidolon, but I think it's a good card and definitely has a home in the, in the 75, not even a question. I want to talk a little bit about Eidolon strategy because that's something when you you actually watched me stream this deck when I, in my first league, and I thought that was super helpful. That was a lot of fun because you have so much experience with it. And there's also some members of the Dive Down Nation watching the stream, giving some feedback in the chat. And a lot of times people were suggesting bringing in Eidolon of the Great Rebel. And the concept was that, you know, you'll do some incidental damage to your opponent because a lot of their spells cost 
low CMC. And that was against decks like Amulet Titan or even Ad Nauseam. The point that I tried to make in response was Eidolon of the Great Rebel isn't going to beat Amulet Titan through chip damage. I didn't think. And I felt like Eidolon of the Great Rebel in this deck against certain strategies was I think you'd want it to do a lot of damage to something like, like you said, like Jund, because they're going to eat two damage no matter what happens if, if when they remove that, that creature. A deck that wants to just go over the top, even though it has low CMC spells, if it's Amulet Titan or if it's Tron, you're not going to be winning in any way through that chip damage anyway. And so this is kind of just a greater question about when do you play Eidolon of the Great Revel in modern? That might be too much of a can of worms right now. But what do you think about that, this concept? I think we can absolutely have an entire episode in Eidolon in the future. And I like this discussion is just a, a spoiler for that. But <laughs> I think that that chip damage does matter because I've mentioned time and time again, prison can get so close. And that's why Leyline was helpful. Because you can get your opponent down to four or two sometimes and then being able to finish it out. So like I mentioned, Ravelmaster does one and then six and then eight, which total is 15 damage. So they only need to fetch at that point and have two Eidolon triggers for that Ravelmaster to be able to get there in only three turns. And assuming Eidolons maybe get an attack in. And the whole thing is you have you have this lock around it. You have the Chalice, you have the Moon. So ideally, Eidolon is sticking around for a turn or two and eating the removal instead of the Prison Piece. And then if they remove the Prison Piece instead, Eidolon is then chipping in for the damage after. So they have to prioritize the Eidolon over the Lock Piece, and if they don't, they're eating more and more damage. So I really think that you... And once again, you can play this on turn one with either a Gemstone Caverns on the draw or a Simeon Spirit Guide on the play. Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not sold on my on my my concept I brought up. I think that it does have lots of incidental value all the time. There's so many decks in modern that it does a ton of damage against. I just was always trying to be thoughtful about when I brought it in. Like, was it sure. really going to generate enough value versus what I'm taking out? And I think with a deck like Prison, there are enough pieces in the main that Eidolon is a perfectly good card to bring in. At you know, sometimes three of even in the yeah. side. So I think it's very valuable in the side and I think it's a very very good sideboard inclusion. But I'm not sure if it needs to be in the main. Especially with the the next card Hazard the Fervent because I never I did not run that main. Did you all run that main? I did. Um, not. I did for my first league. I took her out in the end. It's a card that comes in and out. It's perfectly good as a one of in the main or side depending on the matchup you're seeing. And a really good thing about this card is its activated ability, which is two and a red to discard a card. It deals two damage to each opponent. So that's really helpful, obviously, with Ensnaring Bridge. So if you have two lands in hand and can't play both of them, it can help you get down to zero. I almost feel like Hazret might be your fifth copy of Chandra 4 because of its ability to chip away a little bit of damage while getting cards out of your hand as well. Yeah, I actually went down. I took out, instead of three Chandra, had two Chandra and one Hazret. So it was better in certain situations because the whole thing is it's has it's a 5-4 Instructable Haste and it can't attack or block unless you have one or fewer cards in hand. So the whole thing is, most of the time it's just sitting there unless you can get down to a small amount of cards in hand, which is what this deck wants to do. Like we said, sometimes you can have two lands, and you've played one, and then you draw a card or something happens, and you're stuck with too many cards in hand. So it's not that hard to meet, and this is the deck that can do that pretty consistently for a red deck. But in general, it's not as consistent as you want it to be, but the discard ability is really good if you want to grind your opponent out via that sort of thousand cut style we talked earlier. 
Let's move on to the Planeswalkers. We just touched on one of them, and that's Chandra Torch of Defiance, which I felt like next to the Goblins was maybe my second or third best win con. Chandra Torch of Defiance, for those who don't know, is a two red red four loyalty walker. It's got plus one, exile the top card of your library. You may cast that card, meaning you cannot play lands off of that. If you don't, Chandra Torch of Defiance deals two damage to each opponent. So it's worth noting that there is a weird timing window with this. So when you flip a card to her, you have to cast it then. So say you have Ritual in your hand, which you do in this deck, and you can't cast that then in response to the spell. So say you have, I know. So this deck sometimes will run the six drop Chandra, the Awakened Inferno from the new set, and that is six mana. So there's a time where I had five lands and a Ritual in my hand, and my only out was for Chandra to flip an Awakened Inferno. So I had to use the Ritual then, tap all my, you know, like have that floating in my mana, activate her, and then see if I had it then. So that's not going to come up too often, but you do have to keep in mind that you don't get to then go, I'm going to activate a Scavenging Ooze first. It's do you cast it, yes or no? Yeah, I noticed that. Um, I, I I plus Chandra for her exile ability one time, and I was like, well, I, I have mana. I have fast mana in my hand. Like I'm not getting the opportunity to use it, and so it makes sense that I don't have that window of opportunity. Chandra has a couple extra abilities, which I think are pretty important. It has another plus. Two pluses on a Planeswalker. What a time to be what? alive. That seems too good. Plus one, add red, red. So I found this also to be very useful. Oh, yeah. If you have Karn on the board or if you have just another spell in your hand, adding red, red to cast one more spell per turn would sometimes be the difference between having an empty hand and having one card there. It it was just a useful way to spend all of your mana really efficiently. It makes her a really good thing to accelerate out early because you then have mana from her. Mm -hmm. So even if you spend, you know, two or three cards to get her out, you then can make three or four mana on turn two or three. So playing her plusing, playing a chalice on one's a great play, playing her plusing into a ritual into a three drop, also an amazing play. She just opens up a lot of lines with that plus ability. Yeah. Using the plus ability properly and most powerfully was something that I did not see on board. And you were in chat when we were all watching me stream and you were like, play the Chandra, plus it, do the ritual, play a three drop. And I was like, this is a very obvious line when it's you. But like when, when I'm doing it, I was like, you know, I guess I'll do this. And that makes sense. You're like, hey, Shane, you can make seven mana, do, do seven mana worth of things. And so that was definitely something that you want to be able to look and say, how can I be using my mana this turn? Because the more that you're able to use your mana and use your fast mana especially, the, the more you're able to do that your opponent's not doing. And so if you have the ability to generate two off of your four mana walker and then cast a ritual and cast another spell off of that, you're doing far more powerful things than your opponent's doing on the, on the other side, probably. No, absolutely. And I feel like that really speaks to the strategy and why prison is good because you're laying down a prison, but it's it feels like it's really a cover to have your threats get in. So you're putting down a blood moon, you're putting down a chalice or a bridge or what have you, but it, it really is to protect your threat so you're able to have it go off either via Rabble Master swinging for a bunch, Chandra eventually ultimating, which we'll get to in a second, or things like that. So it's, you know, once again, this isn't a slow, grindy prison deck, although it can be that. It is a get the get the lock down, get your threat down, go, go, go. While my opponent's trying to break the lock, I'm going to kill them. So Chandra's got a couple minus abilities. Minus three, she deals four damage to target creature. 
super self-explanatory, a nice way to get rid of a pesky creature on the opponent's side. Sometimes it'll just buy you a couple extra turns while you get more of your lock pieces in play. More importantly, she's got a minus seven. You get an emblem with, whenever you cast a spell, this emblem deals five damage to any target. And I gotta say, I think I won as many games with this Planeswalker as I did with Goblins in general. In some games, I was able to win just by ticking her up a bunch until I had one spell in my hand, getting the ultimate emblem, casting any spell, and then just winning on the spot in a way that dealing two points of damage every turn would have taken a little bit longer, maybe kept me vulnerable more often. So I felt like the ability to ultimate her somewhat reliably was an awesome feature that I don't usually get from my Planeswalkers. Yeah, Chandra's awesome. She's very flexible. She doesn't do any one thing, particularly insanely, but she doesn't need to be in a, in a deck like this. She gives you so many options, and that's really what a four-ability walker is going to do for you. Yeah, there were a couple games where I would just do the first, you know, 10 points of damage with a goblin, maybe some Eidolon triggers, and then Chandra would just be my closer. Like, the, that last permanent, that was really hard to deal with for my opponent. Speaking of powerful... Planeswalkers, we have Karn the Great Creator. Another Ooh. another format of Walker with five loyalty, because why not? I mean, we've only mentioned Karn the Great Creator like seven to ten times in past episodes. It's it's pretty pretty busto. You mean seven times last episode, right? Probably. So we mentioned it's static. Our, our activated abilities of artifacts your opponent's control can't be activated. Generally good, especially as artifact decks creep up in power level yet again in modern the plus until your next turn up to one target non-creature artifact becomes an artifact creature with power and toughness each equal to its converted mana cost the minus two is the bread and butter of this walker you can choose an artifact card you own from outside the game or in exile Reveal that card and put it into your hand so either uh, in the exile pile uh, on the on your playmat or your <laughs> sideboard. And then you basically get to tutor that up. And what this essentially does is allow you, like we mentioned, these lock pieces that are low CMC artifacts and grab those and easily play them because you have the game locked up in other ways, typically before you're playing Karn the Great Creator. Something that's worth noting and is very fun is it grabs cards in exile. So that means cards that are even exiled by your opponent. And a card that exiles a lot recently, that is a big thing in modern, is Force Negation. Mm. So mm. I've had a Chalice, I've cast on one, had them counter it, and then me go, I'm going to minus Karn, grab and replay Chalice on one? Let's let's do this. So it's just something to keep in mind that obviously you have the wishboard because it's grabbing from the sideboard. That's what out of the game means in this situation. But Think outside the box sometimes and maybe think about times where you can bait your opponent or find ways to get cards into exile that maybe wouldn't exist otherwise or wouldn't be lines you think about otherwise. Yeah, I, I've i played a bunch of Karn the Great Creator at this point already in different decks, and I still forget about that. You know, I'm right-clicking and saying, view your sideboard, which you can do on Magic Online, right? Right. And I'm not clicking the view the exile zone because it's just so atypical to be able to interact with that zone well you know shane it's actually one fewer click to check your exile zone because you just press that button on your lower left side you don't even have oh, to right click we're gonna have to have a bonus episode bonus video episode about onboarding the magic online 
So how did you all play this? I feel like this is a large part of the strategy of this deck. This is like the this is this is a sub game within the game is is how you're using Karn the Great Creator. So what's kind of like your default? So it depends on what your opponent's doing and if you think Karn's going to survive or not. So there is no default. Basically. So there are times where you're going to play Karn early minus grab the coding like we talked about and start blowing up lands. There are times where your opponent's going very fast and you need to play Karn minus grab a bridge. No Karn's going to die, but then play the bridge next turn. Mm. There are even times where you're, you're worried your opponent might be able to kill Karn if you minus. So you might plus on something and then on next turn minus and play the thing. Also, there are times your opponent might have land, hand disruption, be it Colgon's command or other things. So you don't want to grab something because they might strip it. So once again, you might plus Karn and not grab something because even though you might grab the bridge and think it's going to be sick, I'm going to stabilize on their turn, they inquisition you and they take the bridge and you feel like you just wasted your time. Yeah, that was a huge level up to me when you mentioned that when you were kind of giving me tips when we were when I was streaming was you were like, you don't need to grab it now. There's no difference if you grab it now because you're not casting that lattice this turn. You're going to untap minus your Karn and cast it next turn. There's there's no reason for for you to even give them the opening because this deck can play hand disruption. They could rip a Thoughtseize and get it out of your hand. Exactly. Basically, imagine there's an enormous flow chart when you play Karn, and it's, is Karn going to live? Yes, these options. Is Karn going to live next turn? No, these options. And like, you know, some loop around, some figure themselves out, but in general... When you play this card, you have to be very intentional about your next couple turns and think realistically, what can I do and how can I consistently do it? Because even there are times where it's coding, I'm going to blow up their lands. If they kill Karn, coding does nothing for you aside yeah. from maybe some abrade synergy where you can make you know a Planeswalker an artifact and then abrade to destroy target artifact. That's some fun stuff. But in general, you want to be able to have a t- next turn follow-up for Karn. You have to think about how is that going to happen. How about you, Stan? I don't think you've played a ton of Karn the Great Creator. How are you using him in your games? Well, truth be told, I learned a lot from watching Zach play for you during your stream. <laughs> oh, that's 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 a little generous. I don't think it's exactly Zach. what happened. <laughs> I know what I saw. I made like four decisions. I know what I saw. I know what I saw. <laughs> in general, I gotta say I love being able to play this and take up on nothing. It felt like such a level two play. I thought it was really important to remember that you don't want to make it vulnerable to Balt if you're ramping this out early. So exactly. bringing it out, taking it down, mm-hmm. it dies to Balt on the spot. And even if you get Karn on turn one or two, you know that's when he's most vulnerable. I think it's also important to remember that the plus ability reads up to one target. And I personally made a misplay or two where I would animate my opponent's batter skull, kill the germ, <laughs> but then they would still have a 5-5 five, five on the board. Right. <laughs> it's worth noting it can uptick to kill opponents' zero-drop artifacts like Mox Opal mm-hmm. or Mox Amber. It also can destroy opposing Chalice of the Voids because those are zero when they're anywhere but the stack. There's so many things you have to assess on board. And like you mentioned a little bit ago, Zach, is planning a few turns out. And that is a way to level up as a modern player and a Magic player in general, right? Is not just looking at what is in your hand, not just what's looking at your side of the board, is looking at the entirety of the game state and then also being able to plan, okay, I have the opponent locked in this way. How do I ensure I do not give them a window to stop my game plan? Because understanding your opponent has a plan and has cards in their deck 
you haven't sewn everything up entirely, probably, by that point. So you have to play in a way that doesn't give them another, a, a way to open that door that you've hope, hopefully closed 90% of the way. Right, and sometimes that's my saying to grab an additional ensnaring bridge because you have one, but if they blow that up, you know they can take you down. Sometimes it might be something like, on games two and three, putting a chalice or two in the sideboard so Karn can grab them if you need to later game, etc. This card is a card that is very difficult to use and deeply rewards a meta knowledge and a knowledge of what your opponent's game plan is like Shane was saying. And of course, sometimes you get to play minus play lattice and win the game. Yeah, that is more rare. But when that happens, you feel like a very good magic player or <laughs> I feel like a very good magic player. Yeah, without going into too much unnecessary detail, I did okay in my testing with Pyro Prison, I was above average in terms of win to loss ratio. And I think part of that is because I had some heuristics about playing Karn because he's so challenging, because experience with Karn and understanding, you know, what he's vulnerable and what the best lines of play are in given situations are, I think helped me get out of sticky situations that a more novice player may have lost on the spot. And that's one of the neat things about prison in general. It's like sometimes you just wiggle your way out of these really sticky situations by pulling that right lock piece at the perfect time or using your mana super efficiently or getting the perfect piece with Karn. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There are so many times where it's, we need this one card from the top. Oh, hey, we got it. We did it. Like, there, are, knowing your outs is a really helpful skill in prison. And before we end this Planeswalker section, I want to give a shout out slash brief mention of Koth of the Hammer. Not play as much anymore. Totally legit one of choice. Two, two red, three loyalty. Plus one and tap target mountain. It becomes a 4-4 four, four creature until under turn still land. Doesn't give haste, so don't do it on a mountain you just played. It <laughs> minus two to create a red for each mountain you control. It's a little bit of ritual effect if possible. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can play a cough minus and do something wild like play a car and grab a latus if you're really living large. But what's important is it quickly gets its ultimate like we've talked about many times in the podcast. Minus five, you get an emblem with mountains you control of tap. This land deals one damage to any target. So what Koth is doing ideally in a prison strategy is while you have them locked out, you uptick quickly and then downtick, and then you have just this one colorless damage from anywhere, so they can't ideally play things or resolve threats or anything like that. So not as much played as it once was, a little more fringe, but totally legitimate choice and something to think about if you want to play Koth, this is one of the few decks you can. And the tap ability replaces the mana ability. You can't tap it, create mana, and deal damage. It's just a secondary, like, activated ability, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So the the land will read tap, add a red, line break, tap, deal one damage to any target. So you don't get to do both on the same turn. So I, usually what you do is you just leave your lands untapped with your opponent's end step, then hit them for a bunch, your turn untap. It sounds like a fast way to close a game out. Exactly. So moving on to how you're going to interact with your opponent, and these are the removal parts of the deck. So a braid, something we've talked about a lot on this podcast. I know me and Stan are big fans. I think Shane is coming around to the (laughs) B-Baby. It's a little expensive for what it does, but flexibility does matter. I would want it to to deal three damage and destroy an artifact for what, one red? Is that what you want? Well. I want it hybrid. I want it red-green. It's target creature, so it's like not like I can dome. I can can't dome anybody with it. You don't get you don't get reach with a braid. A braid. Anyone unfamiliar? Choose one instant, one in a red. A braid deals three damage to target creature or destroy target artifact. So this is great to pick off an early Thalia if possible, a goblin guide, other aggressive creatures, or destroying artifacts, mana rocks that are hurtful. Getting rid of a pithing needle or a spyglass naming your creature is also very good. Batter skull swords. Ain't that the truth? 
Yep, I, I ran four of these in my list. I hope all of you did as well. This card is very good right now, and I feel like very rarely was it dead. And when I shaved it, I was shaving it for other parts of the deck, which are the sweepers. So these are, t are typically run in the side, mostly not in the main. Things like Anger of the Gods, Sweltering Suns, Kozak's Revenge, etc. All of them are slightly different. Some exile, some can cycle, some are devoid, so hit pro-red things. In general, the sweepers in the side are tuned to the meta and what you think you're going to face. Anger of the Gods is the default, as the graveyard hate option is pretty good. But I've you know run Kozlek's Revenge as a one or two of and had perfectly good results with it. Return. I, I like Revenge better. I wasn't going to correct him. I think Kozlek's Revenge sounds more menacing. Wait, it's not Kozlek's Revenge. I read the wrong name in the notes. That's funny. I play the GD card. <laughs> yeah, Kozlek's Return, my dude. Well, the Revenge of Kozlek 2, Kozlek's Return. <laughs> so you mentioned all this removal, but there's a general lack of cheap removal in this deck that felt kind of hard for me sometimes. Like So against creature decks, I felt like I was stalling to a bridge or like mulling to a bridge because you aren't really able to get a lot of creatures off the board early with this deck. So that was one of the things that felt somewhat challenging to me is that I didn't have a lot of ways to interact with a lot of different permanent types on the other side of the battlefield because there's no burn, really. And because the the main piece of flexible interaction you have is just a braid. Absolutely. And Chandra can be accelerated out and down tick to kill. And that is something to keep in mind. And it's not a waste sometimes, depending on what you're removing. But like Stan said, this is not a reactive deck. Like, not at all. This deck is looking to go first. It's looking to get a goblin out and go, hey, I'm doing this. I'm doing this now. What are you doing about it? So it's more of a deck that demands a response than has a response, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So we're not casting any of these spells unless we're playing lands, right? Or maybe if you put 20 Simeon Spear Guides in your deck and don't get deck checked. I, Zach, I think your round one opponent will, will probably catch on to that pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is, is that a six Simeon? No, no, they're exiled before. No, I know, and there are four in the pile. <laughs> So the the mana base for this deck, 13 to 14 basic mountains usually. It also runs four Ramunap Ruins, and that's the desert that can tap for colorless, or you can tap pay a life, add a red, and it has a tacked on ability for two red red tap, sack a desert, Ramunap Ruins deals two damage to each opponent. And, and it can sack itself to its own ability. Yes. Mm -hmm. And Magic Online will make sure. It, it won't check any, it won't check that you F6'd in your upkeep. <laughs> but it will check. But it will check if you want to sacrifice Ramanap Ruins to its own ability. Do you want to sacrifice Ramanap Ruins to its own ability? To its own ability? My Let goodness! Me. I think the really spicy lands that I'm excited to talk about are the Gemstone Caverns, which is a legendary land for some reason, and I hated that. It's balance. If Gemstone Caverns is in your opening hand and you're not playing first, very important line of text as well. You may begin the game with caverns on the battlefield with a luck counter on it. If you do, exile a card from your hand, and then it can tap to add colorless. But if it has a luck counter on it, it can tap to add one mana of any color. Yeah, this was this was a, this was a finicky land to play for me as a new player. Oh sure, right. And I think I definitely made mistakes too, because. A lot of times you're mulling with this deck, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later. And so I'm like mulling to five on the draw, and I have a gemstone caverns there. It's like, well, am I supposed to put it onto the battlefield and and lose a card to it? 
you know, to get that to get that luck counter on it, or should I just play it naturally? And so that really felt like something where I, I think I made mistakes. Where it's like I'm already down some cards. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't lose another one. But the the ramping is just so tempting in the, in a deck like this. So I, I think that Gemstone Caverns is has a super high ceiling, but a, a floor that's not super low, but frustrating enough if you mess up or it's kind of one of the, the lands you get two of in your opening hand or something like that, if you've already mold. And that just kind of has a, a feel bad attached to it. But it, it gives you so many options and when you're on the draw. Yeah, and having two when you're on the draw and being able to exile one to the other can feel cool. And like, oh, hey, that was going to be dead anyway. And now I'm sort of getting ahead of it. But in general, it does set you down a little bit. And this... Like we mentioned, there is a lot of filler in this deck with the mana with the mana wrapping and the Simeon Spirit Guide, what have you, where it can really feel like sometimes you can have a hand that is this a a bunch of mana wrapping and nothing else, and you feel sort of like ah, I can have a bunch of mana early, but what am I doing with it? So this is one of those cards that is really hard to utilize. And in general, my rule of thumb is. If I'm mulliganing to six, I will not put this out there unless I have an immediate impactful play with it. And I will also usually not do it unless I have two other lands. I'm not pitching to it in my hand because this deck only runs 21 lands because of all the fast mana. So sometimes you can be stuck at only being able to make three mana and have your four drop walkers and threats in your hand. So a very powerful card, very difficult to use. I don't think there's any heuristics that I would say commit to memory or anything like that. This is really a card that you have to learn how it works best with you and how best you want to utilize it. And some people would love, you know, to go to four, exile a card, jam out of Blood Moon, turn one, no cards in hand, you're go. Like Shane said, very high ceiling, but I think if you can misplay and mess up, also very low floor. Yeah, really for me, the important lesson was to read every single line of text because the fact that it was legendary <laughs> came up where I misplayed by playing a second one without tapping the first one. And on MTGO, right. you can't tap in response to the legendary rule. No, you cannot. Likewise, the fact that it only comes in with a luck counter if you're on the draw is something that I forgot. So just make sure you know what this card does. There's two more lands. Both are one of flex slots. One is scavenging grounds, which is a desert as well taps out a colorless, or tap two, tap sacrifice a desert, so it doesn't have to be scavenging grounds, could be Ramanop ruins, exile all cards from all graveyards. So this is something you can run that either is going to provide extra fodder for Ramanop ruins, so maybe you can activate it twice, get four damage in, but sometimes you can activate it in response to maybe a Sword of the Meek trigger, in response to some Dredge triggers, etc., etc. It's just main deck artifact hate, that sometimes will just be under a blood moon and won't mean anything, or sometimes can be really helpful. Another card itself, you're in void. When it enters the battlefield, you scry one, tap, makes a colorless. So it's an untapped scry land. can be helpful for smoothing out your draws. It can be a good turn one play if you don't have a blood moon or chalice or anything. Similar to scavenger grounds, most of the time it's probably under a blood moon ideally, so you might even get the ETB trigger, but just something that can be helpful. People also sometimes run Mutavolt here, mm-hmm. some goblin, light tribal with that, with a rival master but in general there are a collection of colorless lands that can add a little utility to the deck but mostly you're running the core ramen up runes and the mountains as well as gemstone cavern lands are boring you know what's not boring sideboards yeah pretty basic sideboard on this one right because we have the car in the great creator package we mentioned a bunch of the sideboard cards you're going to have there just for that there are some new cards, though, like Leyline of Combustion, which we spoke a lot about. Zach spoke a lot about, actually, of course. I've, in our, I think in our I've Leyline probably episode. written 100 pages at this point. 
Yeah. I mean, it's a good way to get incidental value, much like Eidolon of the Great Rebel, right? Where if they're using hand disruption, if they're using artifact removal, if they're using creature removal, you're chipping away at their life total with a hopefully free-to-cast ley line on turn zero. And sometimes you cast it from your hand naturally, and it's not the best there, but it's not as bad as other ley lines where you've totally lost the value. Mm -hmm. You can also run Chandra Awakened Inferno, a card I've talked about once again ad nauseum on this podcast. We're not going to go into all the effects. Point is, it's an uncounterable Planeswalker, which is really good versus in certain matchups, and can create a one, two, or three multiple damage effect. So when the game's locked out, it can be getting in that damage, moving the game forward. Anger of the Gods, like we mentioned, also run as a sweeper in the side. Eidolon, we also talked about, run either main or side in some number. Very good at hitting opponents, trying to interact with you or go faster than you. So in general, not a ton of sideboard options because the current package is taking up a lot of real estate. You're mostly going for either sweepers or ways to go around hard-to-beat matchups like control. One of the things that's always challenging with a card in the Great Creator deck is knowing when to bring in those pieces, those artifact pieces, from the sideboard into the main deck. You mentioned you had some heuristics for things like Torpor Orb uh, worth bringing into the main deck. And what else did you mention you bring in? Sorcerer Spyglass. And both of those are times where I feel like Karn is too slow and they might be able to go faster or disrupt me enough to where I would rather try to get it early and risk you know getting a Karn before not being able to grab it as opposed to being able to have a Karn and then not be able to minus and play same turn. So I'm a turn too slow. Got it. Yeah. So, I mean, sideboarding is not where this deck really shines. I feel like you're kind of bringing in sweepers for small creature decks and maybe some ways to provide incidental damage against certain strategies that might be pinging you to death or casting small creatures, casting low CMC spells. Yeah. That being said, I do think it's interesting that it uses the sideboard as an extension of the hand or library in a way that decks used to use the graveyard. You lose a little bit of optionality in, you know, post-board games, but you have access to, like, all these tools that, you know, a lot of decks would have to wait until games two or three to reach. So, you're probably shaking in your boots. Every time we talk about a deck, we do such a good job, you probably think, this deck is unbeatable. Not so. 75% win percentage. Yeah, so next we're going to talk about how to beat Prison, because this is... A strategy that's growing in popularity. I bump into it a lot. I played a mirror match while I was doing my testing in a league. Oof, it's brutal. So this isn't even practice from shenanigans. I personally found that this deck struggled against some mid-range strategies like Jund and The Rock because main deck answers to lock pieces using Assassin's Trophy, Abrupt Decay, or even Hand Disruption spells were a huge setback for a deck like Prison, which is down on cards so frequently. So... Jund and Rock decks are so good because they have all this main deck hate and they have it at different CMCs with mm -hmm. Colgan's Command or Abrupt Decay or Assassin's Trophy. But Abrupt Decay really, really pushes it out there because this spell can't be countered. So even if you have a Chalice on two, it gets past it and can either blow up the Chalice, blow up a Bridge, blow up a Blood Moon, and really just force past it. And the lock for this deck can be a little soft and Jund and Green Black can just really hit it all the weak points. So you're talking about Chalice on two, like that's an option and... In the games I played, I felt like I should never do that because I thought it would lock out some of my most important ritual spells. 
Oh, sure. And that's definitely a thing. So I would not just like as fast as possible, put a chalice on two, unless I knew my opponent had a lot of two drops, for example, against a Wurza deck that might be worth doing because both sort of the meek and Hathor Foundry or two. So they have ways they can get around it, like Whirring, for example, or, you know, they can do some Graveyard shenanigans. But in general, they are trying to cast these cards. So ideally, you really want to go Chalice into one, into Chalice on two, but that is slow. So Chalice on two can be good, but realistically, you're not getting that right away. Another thing you can do to play against this deck is to go fast. Burn's a pretty good matchup, and... Like I just mentioned, if the you know if you can chalice into one and a chalice on two, burns pretty shut down. But in general, you play a chalice on one and your burn opponent plays an Eidolon, and then they play Lightning Helix and they play Boros Charm. Or if you put it on two, sometimes they can just go bolt, bolt Goblin Guide, and that's bad too. So burn is just so fast and has enough of a spread out mana cost that it can be a little difficult for Prison to shut it down. Yeah, I lost to burn actually. I, I wish I knew I could do chalice on one and chalice on two because I feel like at that point burn just can't win. Uh, Stan, you definitely can, but the order super important mm-hmm. because if you have a chalice on two, you can't put a chalice on one after right. that because the mana cost is XX, which is two. So I've, you know, sometimes you can really level to yourself that way. So, which is why I mentioned the ideal situation is chalice on one into chalice on two. Because Chalice on 1 is so powerful that if you put a Chalice on 2 first, not only do you kind of hamper yourself a little bit, but you might just totally be unable to also hamper them. But not to say it's not good. Chalice on 2 is powerful, and you know stopping someone's Boros Charm or Lightning Helix and Burn, just to name some, are great examples. But be careful about it. This deck takes a lot of mentioning a sequencing and a lot of knowledge of when to play and when to interact. And I'd just be very mindful and really think your lines through. So... I felt like because this deck was so mulligan heavy, right? You have a lot of cards that need to fit together in certain ways. Not exactly a combo, but using fast mana to ramp to something, you have to have some fast mana and you have to have the target that you're looking for to ramp into, right? So I was mulliganing a lot, and I think that was a correct decision because I was rewarded for it, especially with the newer London Mulligan rule. However, when I was facing down any deck that had like hand disruption or early permanent removal, that felt really bad sometimes. And maybe that's just the nature of the beast and a weakness of the deck is, you know, keeping five on the draw against like a Thoughtseize deck that kept seven made any keep I had feel pretty useless. Yeah, absolutely. And like I'm all to five on the reg with this deck, just because sometimes you draw a hand with only very slow spells. Sometimes you draw only man acceleration. And the whole point of why we're saying what's good against it isn't, you know, to tweak your 75 and bring an entirely new deck to your meta. This is really helpful for sideboarding, right? So when you're sideboarding against Mono Red Prison, it's you know, it's smart to bring in artifact and enchantment hate, especially if it's at different mana costs, so you can get around a chalice. A really incredibly good card to bring in is Wear Tear, because Although the spells are two and one, if you fuse them, it is three. So sometimes, even if the chalice on two, you can blow it up and blow up a blood moon and be totally ahead. So what do you think are the biggest weaknesses of this deck, though, primarily? Is it kind of hand disruption? Is it multi-CMC spells that chalice isn't stopping? Is it speed? I really felt like this deck sometimes lost to two pieces of interaction. If my opponent can take two cards off of the board or two cards out of my hand and they were the right two cards sometimes if i was going down on cards by trying to ramp something out that would be wildly punishing absolutely and that's why a card like force of vigor and wear and tear are so good 
because you're hitting two targets at once. So this deck isn't often having multiple lock pieces. You're having one or two best case scenario. And like I said, it's a very fragile lock because of you're trading the durability of the lock for a fast lock, for a speed of the lock. So you don't have your opponent totally locked out as consistent as you want to. You usually have them hampered or trying to take a different strategy or a different route against you. And once again, then you're trying to follow it up with the other, with the left hook, which is the fast creatures or the damage there. So you're trying to slow them down and then play fast creatures instead of just slow them down, slow them down, grind it out. So because of that, it can be pretty easily disrupted, unfortunately. Like Stan mentioned, like if you, when I get K commanded and they are able to make me discard a card or kill a goblin and blow up a chalice or whatever it is, it's like, oh, um, I, I'm, I'm going to play it out, but I'm pretty sure I can't win this game anymore. Zach, right there, you said exactly, and you were responding to me punching into the camera. I just want, I just yeah. want the listener to see what you saw. <laughs> so in general, set of bring it's this deck. You want to bring an artifact hate, enchantment hate. You want to think about maybe pithing needle effects as well. Uh, we mentioned there's a lot of great walkers in this deck. You can take them off even Ramanop Ruins effects if you're worried about that. But you want to find a way to break the lock and then stop them from reestablishing it and make sure that they cannot hit you with their powerful creatures. So the deck is good. It can be really powerful. But unfortunately, with power, it becomes the ability to be pushed over and not get up. Yeah, I really like this deck quite a bit. I felt like you were mulliganing to solutions that you had to think about. I had to think about every hand, what it was trying to do, what it could do if it was on the game plan against the deck I was facing. I had to think about how to use my mana well, how to use Karn the Great Creator well, how to use Chandra well, at what point I was going to try to play a certain lock piece, how to play my own creatures into my own lock pieces and then have them still generate value later. So it was a very thoughtful deck, and I thought that it was powerful and could tilt your opponent. So lots of fun there. I 100% agree. Compared to some of the decks we've dove into even recently, I got to say, I loved playing this. And in a way, it was a very unique experience, right? It didn't exactly remind me of a lot of other decks, except maybe Tron in the way you have to be super thoughtful about your mulligan decisions and kind of your turn one, two, three plays. Although I typically prefer to spend my free MTGO time playing decks that I have in paper and just get a bunch of practice, like I can actually see myself maybe sometimes borrowing Zach's deck and like playing this and enjoying it just because of how rewarding it was once I understood what this deck was doing. Oh yeah, I went back for seconds. Like I went back for another for another league, even though I know I didn't need to play the league and I have a, a league pause at Mana Traders right now. I'm going back in guys i'm just so happy to hear you loved it it was really fun i'm I'm glad we got to do this episode i'm glad the deck's in a place where we felt comfortable doing it i'm glad a patron wanted to do it it was a win 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 scenario so i had a great time i'm glad you guys had a great time i'm really happy i liked it as well i'm a big fan of this deck obviously i think we'll post some deck lists we played in the show notes as well we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we're gonna talk about some other tcgs we played and how we feel about them stay with us So you all might know my my sister-in-law, her husband, and, and my nephew, they moved into Denver 
a little bit ago. And so my nephew's about like eight years old and he has a binder of Pokemon cards, right? And I don't think there's any cohesive decks there. I think the kids at school like training them. He'll show me kind of like a foil he got recently or something like that. And I'm like, cool, man. I played this in like 1996, 97, like series one, uh, I had played Magic a few years before that, and I had like this like fairly busted Blastoise deck. As it was, it's what exposed me to the concept of broken. Like it, it was clearly uh, a mistake. Like it was. What was it, you, Zach? What did you say that kind of the deck was? The ability is called Rain Dance. Pokemon fans know what we're talking about. But in yeah. general, it was a heavy mana acceleration plan. Where imagine if you got to play like three lands a turn, that sort of thing. Not that that exists in modern or was banned or anything. <laughs> no, but very good. Very powerful. So what I've been thinking about is because he's probably too young for magic, but interested in Pokemon is trying to grab a couple theme decks that people said were pretty decent and just kind of going through the the motions and, and having some reps and kind of teaching both me and him how to play the game. Have any of you been playing Pokemon ever? All right. I have thoughts. <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> I've done like 15 tweet threads about the Pokemon TCG. It's not a game I've ever played competitively, but as I got more interested in magic and more interested in game design at large, I decided to just learn how Pokemon plays because they have a free online program. It's just like MTG Arena, except it's Pokemon and you get to play against other people and it's a great way to learn. And I totally recommend it. It's similar to Magic, and it's a well-designed game, but for the fact it's, I'm pretty sure, entirely at sorcery speed. So I think that... Yep. That's good. That's good. That's good for younger people. Yeah, that's a key difference. One of the cool things about Pokemon products is when they have a world championship, they'll then put out, like, the first and second place decks. And they'll... Yeah, and they'll have a different back, like the old world championship Magic decks, so they're not tournament legal, but you can buy tier one decks and just play with them for like 15 bucks. That's sick. That is sick. Also, one other thing I like, one last shout out to Pokemon before I pass the mic. In their online program, in their like Magic Arena or Hearthstone variant, what have you, they have a format where all you can play is pre-constructed decks. Love Sweet. that. I love, love that. that too. And you just have this wide variety of them and you can pretty much play any pre-con from like Pokemon's recent history. And uh, I think that's just a great way to learn, a great way to get into the game without having to invest basically any money into it. That's wild. So hold on, you can just like make a free account and play pre-cons? Yes, sir. What am I playing Arena for? I don't know. <laughs> you don't even need to use Mana Traders. So I don't know if this will surprise anybody, but the same years that Shane mentioned he was playing Pokemon as, I assume, a grown man with a 401k, I was playing <laughs> Pokemon as a young child, and I was the only one of my friends who read the rules and knew how to play, and I would only want to play the way, you know, with the six prizes face down and, and so the four of deck and everything. Yeah, I know. So my friends would be like, okay, I have seven Hitmonlees. No, only four of in a deck. You can't do that. And it was very frustrating, but that is where sort of my love of learning the rules and learning how to interact with them and going from there really came from. Because it's sh very shortly after this that I go from Pokemon to playing Magic. Because at that time, they're both made by Wizards of the Coast. My local game store in Medina, Ohio, shouts out that very small town, was you know at the same time selling penny sleeves for Magic the Gathering players. And I, of course, sleeved my deck in penny sleeves when I was six years old because I'm a weirdo. Yeah, my little brother is probably around your all's age. And I think that's why I was playing it. 
he's about 10 years younger than me. And so he, I think he was watching the, he was watching the cartoons, me and my slightly younger brother, we had played like I'd played some magic a couple of years before. And so it just made sense to kind of get into that ecosystem, which was a lot smaller than magic was, especially at that point. So I could understand it a little bit better. And, you know, it was just a simpler game. And like you said, you know, I was like, uh, you know, I would go to some smaller tournament things and yeah, be, facing some kids who were like nine and i was like i was like i was like 16 feeling like a like a jerk that's a weird (laughs) feeling for sure so i mean in general i'm a fan of it i think that personally well i love the games i love the pokemon lore i'm a pokemon fan myself my favorite's the Slowpoke family don't want to choose one of them but in general i would definitely recommend it if you if you have a child who's interested in card games or a child who wants to like get into magic I would maybe start with Pokemon first as they're collectible, fun with other kids, and a good way for you to bond with your child as well. So I think it's fun. Woodwreck, I like Pokemon. Yeah, I think Pokemon is to magic as checkers is to chess, where there's some really clear similarities, but I would consider magic, I think most people would consider magic a much more sophisticated game. Which is deeper in general, yeah. yeah. I totally agree with Zach. It's a fun one to learn, especially for younger kids. And on some level, you know, I think it's easier to have an emotional connection to your Pikachu or your Eevee or your Blastoise (laughs) than you are to like an air elemental or whatever the creature on Drown in the Lock is. My ECQ hollow foil, like extra mode, like Dig Dug or whatever. Dig Dug. So... It's in general, there's only so many Pokemon. Well, there can be infinite combinations of fantasy creatures inspired by genies or inspired by tree folk or inspired by, you know, Kraken or what have you. So, you know, I know what a Pikachu looks like. I know even what an Alohan Pikachu mm-hmm. looks like, et cetera, et cetera. So long story short, <laughs> you're saying I, I should play this with my eight-year-old nephew because, yeah. I, mm-hmm. because I need to onboard him into playing Magic when he's like 11. Yes, yeah, and maybe you can pass on some little teachings too. And like, obviously, don't do what I do, which is where you try to teach three year olds about what hands to keep. Like they they don't they don't like that. They don't know how to do that. Look, you can Simeon Spirit Guide into Pyretic Ritual into Pyretic Ritual. Turn one Karn. This hand is not keepable because you have no payoff. What are you doing? Don't do that. <laughs> don't be me. But in general, what you can do there is sort of like, and see, this is good because he powers him up. And it's, oh, he does. And like, hey, I taught someone and that scratched the little itch I have where I just need to be doing fantasy things at all times. Zach, do you have a favorite Pokemon? Like I said, it's a Slowpoke family. If I had to pick one, I would be upset and I would say Slowbro. I really like Absol, but maybe we'll do a Pokemon dive on another episode. Ooh, bonus up. That wraps up this week's show. This was a good one, guys. I had a lot of fun doing it. I hope the listeners had as much fun listening to us go to jail and break out. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or prick our brain on something in modern, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon. Joining at any tier gets you access to our super secret Slack channel. You can interact with us all throughout the day while we're trying to look busy at work. Also, check out our sponsor, ManaTraders.com, where you can rent decks for Magic Online or in paper. Use coupon code THEDIVEDOWN, all one word, to get 10% off your first three months of subscription on ManaTraders.com. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. 
And until next week, get out there and turn one blood moon. an Alo- Alohan Raichu. There's no Alohan Pikachu. Don't make things up. Um, well, mm, I mean, they they probably don't look any different, but I'm sure that there are Pikachu who are from that region. Like, they don't they don't evolve to, you know, go on a surfboard, but... Surfing Pikachu existed in, in other regions as well, Zach. Mm, but, yeah, but was that Pikachu maybe from the Alohan region? Think about well, it. So, so, long story short... <laughs> 